All right, for the sermon today, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Many of you were not able to be here uh, during the uh, Bible study hour. Some of you weren't. And so in that hour, we looked at the book of Hebrews and tried to give you some tips as far as how to read it. Uh, I suggested in that time that I love the book of Hebrews, and I've had the opportunity to work through it on several occasions. I love Hebrews because it's full and rich, and I love its contemplations on the blood of Jesus Christ that is sufficient uh, to cover all of our sins. It was able to do something that the blood of bulls and goats could not do, to redeem us, uh, to buy us back. And so I delight to be with you today and to consider this text of Scripture. In that time I had uh, with uh, our our Bible study this morning, I suggested that I think that the letter of Hebrews may have originally been written to replace a sermon on the Lord's Day, and that it has a sermonic feel to it as you go through it. I I also suggested that uh, the book of Hebrews should be arranged or is arranged by the author around five major sections of doctrine, Uh, or theological truth, and that that doctrine is followed by five warnings. Perhaps if you thought of Hebrews before, these warnings stick out to you. And you can think of some of those texts, like, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. You hear that warning, you just think, oh man, that is very challenging. Or the text that says, our God is a consuming fire. You think of the author of Hebrews and what he must be intending with these people. We, we know that the book is filled with five doctrinal sections, five strong warnings. Here I think that the author preacher is challenging a group of professing believers. Some of these Jewish professing believers were likely genuine in their commitment to Jesus Christ and they held true to the very end. Others, no doubt, were not genuine. And so he arranges these things to confront them. I think he's concerned by some of the things that he hears from them. Some of them are considering bailing out on their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps going back to Judaism because it'll be a little bit easier for them there. Uh, When we come to Hebrews 12, we come to the final warning in the book of Hebrews. As we come to this final warning, the author uses a metaphor. In this text, he asks his readers to imagine that throughout the letter, throughout the book, as he's been unfolding information to them, that he has been leading them to a destination. It's like he's he's taking them on a trip. And where he takes them in the trip, this ultimate final destination is to the base of a mountain. And he's going to explain to them that they have choices to make in how they will respond to Christ. As we go through our sermon today as well, at the end of this sermon, I would suggest we, we all have choices to make in how we'll respond to the book of Hebrews. Now, to understand this choice and this location that he designs for them, we're going to have to pay attention to the scripture. We're going to actually work through a text, Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, which is not the easiest of texts 
to understand. So you're going to have to like get your Bible and get ready and focus in so that the significance of this warning can strike you. Okay? So I encourage you uh, to do those things. So this warning starts with information before the author calls to a final response. The whole point of verses 18 through 24 is made using a contrast that you can see very easily in most English Bibles. If you look at verse 18, you can see the beginning of this contrast when he says, for you have not come. And then you look at verse 22, but you have come. Okay, so there's a contrast between two different locations, two mountains that the author of Hebrews is going to make here. The words are stated in the negative. I haven't brought you through this letter to the base of this first mountain, but I have brought you through this letter and in your life now to this point to a different mountain. And so I want to start with verses 18 through 21 where he says, we have not come to Mount Sinai, a mountain that brings fear. Look in your Bible, verse 18. It says, for you have not come to that which may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Here the author imagines his appeals to them as a journey arriving at a destination, a mountain. And help us to consider the nature of the the mountain he brings them to. The author considers briefly the mountain that old covenant saints encountered when God gave them the law on Mount Sinai. And we read uh, Exodus 19 uh, this morning that, that captured some of this. Here the author of Hebrews in this powerful climax here at the end, he gives seven descriptions of Mount Sinai where the old covenant saints went. And he describes it as terrifying. I think that's the significance of what, if I'm just looking at this text, I, I think he just wants us to leave by saying that mountain was a terrifying experience. Their encounter with God was terrifying. Right? You think it's always terrifying for sinful human beings to come into the presence of unmediated holiness, God. So I just want to look at these seven descriptions very, very quickly, just so you uh, can can relate and understand here what's going on. He first says, we have not come to that which may be touched. I think with this description, he's describing that old mountain as a mountain that was physical. It was a a physical earthly location. He then continues, though, we have not come to a blazing fire. We learned in Exodus 19 that when God talked with Moses on Mount Sinai, the mountain looked like it was on fire. And the fire and the smoke from the mountain were rising up and would, would uh, fill the sky until it went out of sight into the heavens. He then included with this blazing shooting fire, there was a storm that included a great darkness and gloom and a tempest. A tempest would be in reference to a whirlwind or something like that. And, and next to all of these things, they could also hear, the text says, the sound of a trumpet. 
Here, the, the Old Testament narratives in both Exodus and Deuteronomy explain what happens on this mount. They said that there was a sound of a trumpet that rose in magnitude and volume as God revealed himself on this mountain to the Old Testament Israelites. And he finally says in this text, you're just going down through these verses, that you come to, you have not come to a voice that makes its hearers beg. You see that in the text? These seven descriptions end climatically here with the sound of a voice in the heavens. I think when the Israelites experience this event on Mount Sinai with God speaking to them out of the cloud and the thunders and the flashings and the lightnings, they were absolutely terrified. As a matter of fact, one verse we weren't able to read this morning is in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 19. And in that chapter, we get the response of the Israelite people. They said this, Exodus 20, 19, it says, And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Basically say, we'll keep listening to you, but we don't want any more words from him. From him, they're terrified. And finally, as we're just surveying through these verses, in verses 20 and 21, we, we learn a little bit more. We learn about the terrifying nature of this event, and it's compounded by two other things. They were told that if a man or beast even so much as touches the mountain, they'll be stoned. And that thought, the author of Hebrews tells us, terrified the Israelite people. They're perplexed that even if a beast wanders up on the mountain, it's going to be killed. This mountain not only impacted beasts and the Israelites, though, we find out at the end of this text that Moses, their leader, the faithful one, Moses himself was terrified by these things. In Hebrews 3, the author of Hebrews has already told them about Moses, this Old Testament figure, Moses, and who he was. He was, you remember what the text says in Hebrews 3? Moses was faithful in all of God's what? Do you remember? He was faithful in all of God's house to testify the things that would be spoken later. But here the author of Hebrews concedes that even Moses couldn't remain calm and confident in the presence of God. Men and women, that's actually a very interesting testimony regarding the nature of the old covenant system. It would allow for occasional encounters with God, but those encounters were not a moment where one left feeling warm and cozy and fuzzy. Like, it made you quake in fear. And so this fearful experience of, of God is what Israel in the old covenant era had experienced. It was a mountain that brought fear. But the author of Hebrews is saying very quickly, we have not come to the base of Mount Sinai. But in this letter, through this doctrine, through these warnings, I've brought you to the base of another mountain. And that's what verses 22 through 24 are about. And that's what I really want to uh, encourage you with today. And so secondly, he says, we have come to Mount Zion, a mountain that brings joy. Mountain that brings joy. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood 
that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Again, the author is piling on descriptions here, using rhetorical flair at the end of the letter. He gives, according to my count, eight descriptions of this final destination that he's brought them to. Most English translations, by the way, you can see this. You just look for the little word to. So if you mark those in your Bible, it might remind you of what's going on in this text. You've come to this place, to this place. He keeps identifying it. He identifies this new mountain in eight different ways. And so, again, I want to briefly walk through these with you. This one will take a little bit longer, but I have time. So we're just, we're okay. He first describes this new mountain as Mount Zion. Now, the scriptures speak of Mount Zion on many occasions. I remember the first time I came to this text trying to study it. Whew, just was an overwhelming amount of biblical material. According to my count, uh, Zion is used 159 times in the Old Testament, seven in the New. It's this overwhelming amount of data. And some of these texts are really difficult. I have a friend, I think he preached here not too long ago. His name's Chris Bruno. He's written an entire article on one occurrence of Zion in the Old Testament. So you should ask him what he thinks sometimes about Zion. There's a lot that you could say about Zion. But I want to make two statements with you for the purpose of this sermon today. First, as I think of Zion, it appears to me that the term Zion can be used to describe either an earthly or a heavenly location in the scripture. And so one of the challenges for you as you come to the term Zion in the Bible is to see, is he talking about an earthly location or heavenly? And let me just give you a few samples of these. Okay, first, we'll talk about it being an earthly location. The very first occurrence of the word Zion in the Bible helps you to see how the word was initially used. You could write down 2 Samuel 5 and verse 7, and I'll read to you a portion of that verse. 2 Samuel 5 and verse 7. In, in that text, it says this. It says, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Okay, so in 2 Samuel 5, 7, you've got David, the king, taking a physical location, the stronghold of Zion. And then the text continues, that is the city of David. Later it says in verse 9, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. Because this is a physical location that David takes and conquers and it becomes his city, Zion. You could write down 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes of the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. So it's still a physical location. The city of David is Zion. There are many, many other texts in the Bible that use the word Zion to describe a physical location on earth. I think later it becomes known as Jerusalem. Sometimes it's referring more narrowly to the Temple Mount, the place where the Jewish people would worship Yahweh. Some in your congregation, perhaps you're a little bit more elderly, may have even learned songs about Zion from the Psalms. There's Psalm 48. Psalm says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful in situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Now, how many of you know an old song about that? Okay, you just dated yourself. Go ahead, keep, keep that hand up there. Okay. 
Some of you know an old song that people used to sing about that. And I, I learned that song as well. But for me, I didn't really know what Zion I was singing about that song. In that psalm, Psalm 48, the sons of Korah are rejoicing in the security and beauty of earthly Zion, Jerusalem. And they're saying because the God of war is with them there in Zion, no king or nation will be a threat to the people. Okay, so sometimes when you come across the word Zion in the Old or New Testament, it can refer to a physical location, Jerusalem, the city of David. But there are other texts, right, where you're reading through your Bible and the word Zion comes up and you think this is not an earthly location. So it can also refer to a heavenly location. For instance, there are several Psalms, I think, that take Zion this way. Psalm 9 in verse 11 says, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Okay, so we're singing praises to God. He is sitting on a throne in Zion. Psalm 50, verses 1 and 2. It's a very clear text, I think, on a heavenly Zion. It says, the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. It seems to me, as I'm reading through Scripture, I say, okay, this is a heavenly location at times. And perhaps most important to the author of Hebrews is Psalm 110, 1 and 2. He quotes this psalm over and over again. You know Psalm 110 and verse 1? Do you know that psalm? I'll give you a hint. It starts out like this. The Lord says to my Lord. Remember that text? I think that's prophetically speaking about a, a conversation that God the Father would have with Jesus. The Lord, God, says to my Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But verse 2 goes like this. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Those psalms give you just an example, I think, of psalms where the psalmist is, is using Zion to refer to a heavenly location. Of course, much later, much, much later in your Bible, in the book of Revelation, you get near the end and you, you find that uh, in Revelation chapter 14, John speaks of a vision that he receives of 144,000 witnesses who've been martyred during the tribulation. They're standing before the, the Lamb and before the throne the text says, on Zion. So Zion can refer to a heavenly location or an earthly one. And I would add to this a second idea about Zion I think is important. I think a common theme regarding Zion, regardless of whether the biblical authors are talking about it as an earthly or heavenly location, is that this term speaks of the place where God dwells. The place where God is or dwells. That's why the biblical authors can describe heaven as Zion, but also the temple where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt for many years during the Old Covenant times. Now, in our text in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, you've come to Zion. And he makes it clear which Zion he's referring to. Um, he gives two other names to it in the next phrases. He says, it's the Mount Zion that is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
I think here he's thinking uh, in this metaphor of, I brought you to the brink of this heavenly city of God. Now, with this metaphor, the author describes things differently, I think, than some other New Testament authors do, but I think both are true. Instead of Jesus coming down from heaven, which is a concept you'll find all throughout the scripture in this metaphor, believers are going with the author to heaven. He's taking his hearers to heavenly Zion in this final warning. But then, in these eight descriptions, he shifts from a discussion of the location of this mountain to the life that you find on it. And what you find with these final five descriptions is that this mountain is teeming with life. What this mountain contains or has, these living beings, life on this mountain is more impressive or powerful than anything found on any physical earthly mountain anywhere, including Sinai. So just read it there. The next way he describes it. You've come to, on this mountain, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. He describes them in interesting ways here. First, he says these angels on this mountain are innumerable. That is, he imagines great thousands of angels on this mountain. I agree with one author who's reading here, and he says, you know, when you come in Scripture to the presence of one angel, you, you normally come to some, an angelic being that was sent out by God. But when you come to groups, large groups of them, you come to the presence of God. It's usually where God is. So he describes these angels. He says they're innumerable. And then he adds to that this other description. Innumerable angels in festal gathering. Slightly speaks of countless angels in one large joyful celebration or assembly. And it's at this point, if you're reading through this text, you're saying, okay, the movement is from a mountain that produces fear to like one large joyful gathering. This is joy. Alongside this host of angels in one joyful gathering is, keep reading, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who do you think that is? Right, that's, that's not like an easy description, right? To the assembly of the firstborn. I told you we're going to do some work today, but it's going to be worth it at the end. Stick with me. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Well, I just take, take the words, assembly. That's a word that's often used in your New Testament Bible to describe a gathering of people called the church. So I think that's in reference to the church. But why would he call them the church of the firstborn? When uh, Brian and Phil, elders of the church, were trying to discover a name for this church, they came up with Ridgefield Bible Church. They did not call it the church of the firstborn. Be a little bit mysterious, right? Have you ever heard any church? Anyone ever heard any church called the church of the firstborn? Other than here? What is this in reference to? Well, I think you just go to the first chapter in Hebrews and you can, you can find the other occurrence of firstborn in this book and you can figure out what he's saying. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6, when he's making it a comparison between angels and Jesus, he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So you, can you participate a little bit in a sermon? Who's the firstborn one? Jesus. 
And so in this Hebrews text, in the back, in, in this final warning, he says, you have come to the, an assembly of the firstborn. And it's uh, plural there. The assembly, the church of the firstborn ones. We identify with Jesus. We're the assembly of the firstborn ones. And then he continues to describe us here uh, by saying these are the ones who are enrolled in heaven. We can't take too much time on this, but the idea of enrolled could be translated written or registered there. This language seems to suggest that there is a heavenly book with the names of these uh, members of the assembly in it. Again, we won't take the time to look at all the other texts in the Bible about the book of life. But this passage describes gatherers in the name of the firstborn ones as those who have their names written in a heavenly book. So the author of Hebrews has some of the church already in heaven on this mountain, Mount Zion. And then he continues. You see the next living being he has on this mountain? He says, and to God, the judge of all. The next being on heavenly Mount Zion is God, who's rightly called the judge of all people. He's the judge of all men and women, the judge of the living and the dead, the judge of the righteous and the wicked. He's there on this mountain. And with God is another group. You just continue to look through this text, right? It says, uh, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in one joyful gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And then he says, and to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect in heaven. Now, this is actually going to be the last you know, heavy lifting that we have to do in this sermon. Who do you think the spirits of the righteous made perfect in heaven are? Is this just like another way to refer to the church? Who are the spirits of the righteous made perfect in heaven? I came to this text, uh, you know, when I was preparing uh, for lessons and preaching for our church a while ago. And this perplexed, this is a hard one, right? And so since I had so much pain, I want you to have pain. Uh, right now, as you think, who are the spirits of the righteous made perfect in heaven? What is that? I do not think it's in reference to the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, and you can figure this out on your own. I think for me, the, the, key, the key to identifying this group would be the words made perfect. And to find that the last time you see this, the last time you see those words is at the end of Hebrews 11. So I want to just take you there for one moment. Okay, Hebrews 11. And you know what's in Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11 is a chapter where the author of Hebrews starts his last doctrinal section. And he wants to give to his readers example of old covenant saints who had faith, who endured and persevered. And so what he does is he starts in Genesis. And he goes through his Old Testament scripture, like from Genesis to Malachi. I, I think basically he's following canonical order. And he's giving examples to them of people from the Old Testament scripture who were faithful, who had faith. And notice how he ends that great chapter. Look at verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. 
Those old covenant saints who had faith, they didn't receive what was promised. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I think what he's saying here is they didn't receive everything until... God decided to interact and intervene through his son, Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant to bring completion. These Old Testament saints were waiting to be made perfect. So I would suggest they were waiting until someone would come who would bring something better, Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. So the phrase, the spirits of the righteous made perfect in heaven, I think is the author's way of saying that the faithful Old Testament saints finally got it. They were made complete, made perfect, and now he has perfected them, joining in the life around or on heavenly Mount Zion. And of course, the only way Either the church or Old Testament Israel is able to enjoy heavenly Mount Zion is to be found in the very next description he gives of life on this mountain. He says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He's already told us, the author's already told us all about Jesus in the book of Hebrews and the new covenant that he brought replaces the old But now the author chooses to bring this whole sermon to kind of this rushing climax by mentioning Jesus again. And having described Jesus, he has just one last way to describe this destination for his readers. He says, and they have also come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let me say just a few things about that before we partake in the table together. First, I want you to notice that the author of Hebrews has a focus on Abel at both the beginning and the end of this section. He started his doctrinal statement in chapter 11 with a mention of the faith of Abel. And now he brings this warning to a close by mentioning him again. But second, I want you to notice, I think that the real point of this part of the verse comes through metaphor. The author does something strange here. He personifies blood. He has blood speaking. It's an arguing blood. (laughs) What an interesting picture, right? It's an articulate blood. Strange, yet powerful. Now, to make sense of what he means by an arguing blood that's speaking, you need to know the Old Testament. It starts with the story of Cain and Abel, because he's got the reference to Abel here. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Remember that? We're, We're preaching through Genesis right now at Colonial, so it's fresh in our minds. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Remember, Cain kills his brother Abel. And do you remember how God confronts him afterwards? 
Genesis 4.10. You can look it up sometime. He says, he says this. What have you done? And then he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You remember that? God is saying that Abel's blood was demanding justice from the ground. Yet men and women, what the author of Hebrews says here is there is a blood that speaks a better word than Abel's blood. And the author tells us that it's blood that has been sprinkled on an altar for sins. See, men and women, there is a blood that demands both justice, but that also demands forgiveness. So the author has his hearers coming up to a blood that can argue for them. I think the author designs this whole passage in this book so that you would fall in love once again with Jesus. And you would fall in love with the blood of Jesus that provides the only argument that God will listen to for the forgiveness of your sins. I love the old hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, and the verses in some sense remind me of this part of Hebrews. Remember the third verse? It goes like this. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They, what's that in reference to? It's in reference to those five bleeding wounds. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. Continues, the father hears him pray. His dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood. Ever hear that song you sing? His spirit. Wesley imagines a conversation between the Holy Spirit of God and the blood of Jesus. He continues, his spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born again. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer what? How's that song? I can no longer fear. Men and women, the author says here of Hebrews that we have not come to an earthly mountain that brings us fear and terror, but we come to the heavenly Mount Zion where Christ's blood speaks on our behalf. It demands forgiveness. So that at the end of life, as Satan brings accusation against me, and he says, what about his gossip, his slander, his bitterness, his idolatry, his jealousy and fits of anger? God will say, I will remember his sins and his lawless deeds no more. 
In that moment, I tremble and think, and we tremble and think, what about all the impurity, the sensuality, the lust, the envy, the drunkenness? The answer comes forth from the altar, from the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel's. You are forgiven. It's all covered. You're good. So the author of Hebrews takes us up on a trip to the brink of seeing God, Jesus, and a sprinkled blood that speaks a good word for you. How should we respond to this? That's some great information. How should we respond? I'll just point you to the two ways he tells you to respond in this last paragraph. I'll just point them out to you. The first way he says you must respond, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse the one who's speaking with you. Do not refuse the one who's speaking with you. Do not refuse the voice of the one who's been appealing to you here. I think this is reference to God. And some of you really need to consider whether you have ever responded properly to the voice of God. Have you ever responded to God's voice? What will you do with what he has said in this book about his son Jesus? Will you repent and believe in Jesus Christ for your sins? See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking with you. And then the second response for us before we go to the table is in verse 28. To those of you who are genuine in your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I think there's one thing left for you to do. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'd say that the way we should respond to a sermon like this or a challenge like this and the final warning of Hebrews, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, is you, you should be filled with gratitude. This is uh, the word grateful is a normal word for grace. It's often used in Bible in reference to God and what he does to us. When it's used of human beings, it's how we respond to God's grace to us. We're filled with gratitude and joy. So at the church, I would say the way you should respond to a sermon like this and a, mount, a mountain like this and a future heavenly destination like this is you should be filled with gratitude. You should be grace men and women. Grace men and women. Filled with grace as you interact with other people. Recognizing all of your sin is covered by a blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this text of scripture. I thank you, Lord, for this information, this powerful information about two mountains. Mount Sinai, which was grace from you, but which brought fear and trepidation, trembling from Moses and the people. But then also, a, a heavenly Mount Zion, Lord, which brings us so much. It brings us to you, brings us the presence of your son, the mediator of a new covenant. And it brings us to a place where there is true forgiveness by blood that argues for us. That argues for us. Lord, I thank you. Pray that we would be men and women could be filled with gratitude and grace as we interact with others. May we not leave here unchanged. Leave here focused on the regulations, the rules, 
but focused on what you have done to overcome our sinfulness in Christ. And I would pray, Father, at this moment for any person here today who has never properly responded to your voice, to the message of the book of Hebrews, the message of your word that tells us about Jesus, that tells us that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross, that he rose again, he dies in our place so that we could be forgiven. He rises so that our sin and death could be defeated. So thank you, Lord. And I I would pray for any person who's never repented of sin and believed in Jesus. I pray that they would do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.